first came out of slavery, blacks, blacks were relatively successful because they understood the importance of one thing, and that, and that was to learn how to own and to control, get resources, because that was the whole purpose of slavery. Slavery was basically to maldistribute almost 100% of all this nation's wealth, resource, privileges, and controls all levels of government into the hands of the dominant white society. And it was very effective, it did an excellent job. And slavery, slavery came into existence in the 1500s. It had a very specific purpose. Slavery was an economic issue, not a social issue. And so black folk learned that even as slaves, they might not have been well-educated, but they weren't stupid. They figured out that he who owns and controls has the power. And so when slavery ended in the 1860s, about 1866, at that point in time, you had, they learned something else from the radical Republicans who came out and said that, you, that black people in America can only be two, two, one or two things. Either you're going to be slaves or you're going to be free. To be free, you must minimally, these blacks must minimally, five million, almost five million blacks must minimally have 40 acres of mule and $100 given to them coming out of slavery if they're going to play this game. Because at that time in slavery, black folk were the primary generators of wealth on the earth. This country had invested over $8 billion just into slavery. That was more money than all the businesses and all levels of government put together. And, they, and, and black folk as slaves, they knew the importance of wealth and owning and controlled it. And they wanted that 40 acres and a mule and $100. And, uh, and Congressman Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, and Benjamin said that on the floor of the United States Congress in the 1865 Civil Rights Law. Give black folk 40 acres of mule and $100. And Andrew Johnson came and became the president after Lincoln's assassination. He killed the bill. They came back again in 1866 again saying say, black folk have to have resources to be able to compete. And then later on, they converted that to the 14th Amendment in 1868. But in the meantime, black folk left slavery, not only controlling anything. Black folk left slavery after four or five hundred years, penniless, poor, disorganized, no religion, no clothes, no food, no animals, no home, no land, no tools, no weapons, nothing. And white folks couldn't go out there and compete. And unfortunately, our, our, our leadership didn't understand that. You cannot compete not owning anything. But a few blacks got the word. They said, what we have to do is try to get some of that land at 40 acres and a mule. I thought it was a pretty simple thing for us to come to the table and simply say, we want our reparations. I actually thought it was a pretty simple request. This was already promised. <laughs> this ain't no, this wasn't, we're not, I, I, really, we wasn't asking, to be honest with you. We was promised 40 acres and a mule. Now, as we build on these businesses, as we build on our lives, as we build on our families, as we figure out who we want to build this life with, this dream with, and the people that we want in our tribes, we're not asking no more. We're not requesting 40 acres and a mule. That's the, you, either you come to the table with that or get the hell off. Come to the table at minimum with what was already promised to us or there's no need to talk business. 
Trump flag for. Yeah, you know? but believe me, we ain't Trump and we'll be on. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, does Bernie Sanders, uh, this is a question that we've been asking of all Democrats, does Bernie Sanders have an agenda for, for black people? Absolutely. What is it? All right. Um, look, we start off, as I mentioned, with massive disparity in the general population. Mm -hmm. Very few have a lot. Most people have nothing. Then you got another form of disparity, which is a wealth disparity. All right. So right now, you have the white community, the average white family, uh, owning 10 times more wealth than the average black family. You have a health disparity. Infant mortality rates of the black community are, I think, two and a half times what they are in, in the white community. You got an education disparity. We talked about a criminal justice disparity where African-Americans are much more likely to be uh, arrested and put in jail. Those are disparities that have got to be addressed. addressed. Um, there is a friend of mine, uh, Jim Clyburn of uh, South Carolina. Carolina yes, yeah. And uh, Representative Clyburn came up with an idea, which I think we should build on. It's called, he called it 10-20-30, which says that you pay, you focus federal resources on those communities most in distress. And at the same time, you've got to deal with institutional racism. I remember redlining, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a small business person, I talked to a guy in Milwaukee last year, uh, and he had, it seems to be a moderately successful business. I said, Bernie, I'm going, black guy, I'm going to the banks. I can't get a loan. Uh, so we've got to deal with racism and discrimination within the Financial Services Committee, within the financial services industry. You've got payday lenders. My God, unbelievable. You know what the interest rate for the, and they rip it off on the most vulnerable and poorest yes. people. So to answer your question, we do have an agenda. And uh, it's an agenda that we will fight vigorously for. Yeah, that's why I, want, I would like to see federal, what you just said about the <clears throat> banks, I would like to see federal government put more support into the black banks. Absolutely. I feel like that could help black entrepreneurs. And not only and black, black banks. black homeowners as well. Mm -hmm. And black homeowners, but black business in this sense. Correct. In this sense. Unemployment now is, quote unquote, relatively low. But you go to African-American communities and the youth unemployment rate is still unbelievably high. And you tell me, I mean, please tell me, what happens if you're a kid who drops out of high school who has no money? You're probably going to turn into a life of crime. You got it. Yeah. What a waste. What a waste. So, uh, you know, we got to invest in those things. We have invested housing. A lot of people in the African-American community not making a lot of money, spending 50% of their uh, income in housing, child care. But we got to change that. And, you know, I mean, from the smallest things, from car insurance is more expensive in the, in the African-American area. I know. I mean, daycare is more expensive a lot of times in the African-American area. But a lot of times we can't get loans. Like, they will not give African-American, black people, and minorities loans. That's we met problem. with some African-American small business people in, I think, Las Vegas, Nevada, actually. And that's exactly what they were saying. And what about HBCUs? Absolutely. It's very big for, for our community. It is. It is and very support big. is very big. It is very big. They, uh, I don't know the numbers, but as you know, a significant number of uh, African-American teachers, uh, academics, uh, professionals mm -hmm. uh, come out of the HBCU uh, system, and they do a great job, and they're underfunded. So when I talk about making most of the, as I recall, most of the HBCUs are a public institution. Some are not. Mm -hmm. But we are going to pay a lot of attention to them. Now, why does it seem like this week you've been kind of dodging the reparations question? The Senator Harris and Senator Warren have both kind of spoken out and said that they agree with some form of reparations. Well, what the question is, what do we, I'm not dodging the question. The mm -hmm. question is, what do we mean by reparations? I mean, it, it, it seems to me a lot of people mean a lot of different things. 
to my mind, it means that we have to deal with the fact that there is enormous disparity uh, between the black community and the white community. And that issue has got to be addressed. And I've indicated to you some of the ways that I think it should be addressed. Well, I think they mean uh, some type of economic empowerment to the African descendants of slaves. But what does that mean, economic empowerment? If I just talked about the fact that I would do my best to change the banking system to make sure that we end racism, that we pay attention to distressed communities, that people get the loans they need to make the investments they need. What about free cash payouts? No. How much you want, Sean? agree with that? <laughs> Why don't you agree with that? Well, I, first of all, uh, you mean just a check to every African-American? Yes. Well, then there's a check to every Native American who were nearly wiped out when the settlers first came here. I think the way we go forward is to build America together. There are distressed communities, white communities. There are distressed Latino communities. Right now, what you have is a government owned and controlled by big money interest that worries about Wall Street and the drug companies. We're going to change that. And we're going to pay attention to the needs of working families and low-income families uh, in this country in a way that you have never seen. But this government has also systemically oppressed us in a way that they haven't oppressed other other communities. I mean, through slavery, through segregation, now mass incarceration. And but I think it should be something done specifically for African Americans. Well, and all of those issues, mm-hmm. all right, we are going to deal with mass incarceration. And we're going to invest, I think, at the end of the day, if we end the discrimination that exists in financial services, in health care, in education, if we guarantee health care to all people, if we, and we're working on a particular program, make sure that every person in this country uh, has a job because there's enough work to be done dealing with climate change, dealing with our crumbling infrastructure, I would suggest to you that not only the African-American community, but every community will be a hell of a lot better off than they are today. Do you think Democrats really believe in reparations for African-Americans or is it just a good talking point for this campaign cycle? I don't want to... I don't want to speak for other people. Mm-hmm. What about um, legal? You're not handing us anything. And when you're asked about reparations, you start talking about people who are disadvantaged or distressed. No, I could easily be a billionaire and still want my reparations. Because then that could be something I hand down to my grandkids or my kids or whoever, or whoever I want to give the money to. No, give us the reparations. This ain't got nothing to do with how much money somebody has or doesn't have. This is about America taking care of the very people that built it. The government is not bigger than the people. And once we get that through our heads, we can actually get a little bit further in life. They don't trust each other. You can't trust each other if you don't have a community. A community comes first. Once you get a community, you get to know people, then you move up to the next level, you trust them. Once you learn how to trust people, then you move up to the third level, you begin to cooperate with them. And once you learn how to cooperate with them, then you get to the fourth level, you start holding them accountable for what they're doing wrong. The same thing in business. In business, you're building a, a, a business operation and competitiveness and power dynamics is a five-story building. The first thing you all should be doing, as I said, get you some institutions like the chamber and started teaching, acquiring health, uh, whatever, wealth and power through operating businesses. If you build an economy, that's a five-story building. The first floor must always be economics. 
Always build an economy before you do everything else. The first floor is the economy. The second floor is politics. The third floor is the court and police departments, the enforcement system. The fourth floor is the media. The fifth floor is schools. Now again, you've been bamboozled on that because they keep telling you that if you go to go send black folks to school, go, jump to the fifth floor and try to come back down. Education can do nothing. Education is just a tool. You start with your economy. Once you build an economy, a viable, competitive economy, by making your money circulate eight to 12 times, you take that money and you move to the second floor. The second floor is your politicians. Don't worry about vote. You don't have to vote. People that got money, whether it's organized crime or wealthy people, they don't have to vote. You take your money on the first floor and you buy every politician on the second floor. <laughs> If you can't buy them, you rent or lease them. And once you rent or lease those politicians or buy them on the second floor, you make hold them accountable to go to the third floor. And you stop the police from shooting and killing black folk all the time. And come up with new codes of conduct. Then once you get to the third floor and get and get, a, and get the police and court stress them straight because you can now effectuate it, then you go to the fourth floor. The fourth floor means media. You cannot own television stations, radio stations, and daily newspapers if you don't have an economy. I hear black folk crying all the time. I have two radio stations. I used to have four. You cannot have a, a media operation unless you have an economy. Who's going to buy your time, your ads? You got to have an economy to buy the time. And so you got to, you got to, right now we have 12,000 radio stations in the United States. We got about uh, 12,000 cable systems, 5,000 daily newspapers, 5,000 TV stations. Black folk own 35 thousandths of 1%. You can't even communicate. You can't communicate, you can't organize. You can't get communication because you don't have an economy. And once you get, get enough money, you put your medium up at the, up at the fourth floor. Then lastly, you tell the fourth, the fifth floor, which is a school system, say, here's what we want. We don't want any more black basketball players and football players. Every black right now, a successful black, has got some kind of an illicit relationship with a ball. <laughs> He's either running with a tennis ball, basketball, golf ball, football, sitting on jokes, telling jokes, pretending he's having a ball. Just get, up, get away from that. And say, from now on, you've got to raise kids that can produce something. The producers will be the people survive. Right now, black folk are zero producers and 100% consumers. You're going to get totally wiped out in this country and wiped off the face of the earth under globalization if you don't learn how to produce vertically. You produce something at the bottom level, then you go up and have other blacks come in over you. If I, like I'm producing fish, a million pounds of fish a year, I want blacks to come in at warehouse, wholesale, distributor, then retail. I want to see some black lobster restaurants in the country. And you, and you build, and I, I have about two more minutes I got. Now, and you, and you, build these, you build these vertical orders based on your competitive advantages. Start build your businesses where you have a competitive advantage. What are your competitive advantages, black folk? Always build your business where you dominate in population or you dominate in spending patterns. I, went, I built the seafood factories. Why? Because blacks eat three to four times more seafood than whites, and you spend $9 for every $1 white spend. You should be controlling the seafood industry. Do the same thing with leather. You do the same thing with your hair. Right now, blacks are the only people got, got a certain quality of hair. And yet the Koreans are controlling black hair care in America. And you watch you build these businesses like the difference between Detroit and Chinatown. You got it in, in, in Chinatown in New York. In Chinatown, New York, they got about a little less than 300,000 Chinese there. And again, in Detroit, you got almost a, had almost a million blacks. I looked at the two and compared them. What, in, in Chinatown, they had, they had 35 banks. 
35 Asian banks. Detroit, they got two black banks. That's owned by the same one. How is it that, that a million, almost a million people don't have two banks and 300,000 have 35 banks? I looked at the number of restaurants. The Asians had almost 400 some restaurants in, the, in New York. Black folk in Detroit had three. I looked at and I said, how does that, how do these Asians are producing so well and have some, so much, and they got, and Asians have the highest medium family income in America. Here's what they do in conclusion. They, 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 they build around their advantage. What is it that Asians eat the most of? They eat noodles. I went and found something like about, about 100 and some noodle factories in New York where they produce their own noodles. Now, once they produce the noodles, what do you put on the noodles? They put a sauce on the noodles. I, had a, I found about another 60 or 70 companies that produce the sauce that go on the noodles. And I said, what else they producing? Then when I found that they had, I don't know how many, 35 or 40 companies that made the little fortune cookies. They take care of their own people. That's why you'll never see Asians, Arabs, Hispanic, or American Indians out marching for integration or for social civil rights. They don't do it. They build businesses. I love you all. Take care.